Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to that Anthro Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriella Campbell. Does anyone else listen to Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard? LOL. Anyway, that's how he introduces every single one of his podcast episodes, and I really felt like I needed to recreate it today because I love him. Anyway, hey guys, it's Gabby. Welcome back. I'm going to rant to you guys for just a second. So I told you in one of my last episodes that I've been using my new podcast microphone and my new podcast recording platform, Zencaster. Well, last week, the episode with Dr. McClure, you know, I always ask my family members for input, what can I be doing better, etc. And my mom was like, hey, here are some things that I think there was a bit of like feedback and I realized like why that was. So I had, I had what I thought was a foolproof plan for recording with Ronnie. I was like, guys. I'm ready. This is going to be the best, you know, I mean, obviously the episode was great, but this is going to be the best, like audio quality, no technical difficulties, whatever. And then the universe said, darling, no, we're going to make you struggle just a little bit longer. So we get on to record with Ronnie and on either end, we're both hearing like broken up crackling voices, the, the, we can't hear her, the headphones aren't working. So finally, after we even recorded like 10 minutes of the episode, I was like, no, this is, no, what she's saying is so important and just so well put that you guys deserve to hear every single word and have no, no technical difficulties. So first of all, thank you to Ronnie for sticking with me as we dealt with those technical difficulties. But guys, today's episode is with Ronnie Bailey Steinitz. She's amazing. She's a PhD candidate at UCSB. She studies ecology and animal behavior evolution. Get ready. Get ready. This episode is wonderful. She's so elegant and well-spoken in the way she communicates it. I have zero background in this field, and I connected and understood everything she was saying. I really hope that you guys feel the same way. Getting into this week's recommendation. I don't have a book for you guys because I'm being honest, haven't even finished Conspiracy of Bones, which was my recommendation like a couple weeks ago. Anyway, 
I have a really great podcast to recommend to you guys. Oh, and also later in the episode, Ronnie recommends a podcast in a book. Again, all will be linked in the episode notes. So the podcast that I have as a recommendation for you guys is the Arc and Anth podcast with Dr. Michael Rivera. Now, they produce three episodes a week. Three. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I I don't know how they do that. Major props to him for doing that because I produce one episode a week and I can't even imagine doing three. Anyway, so if I'm not providing you with enough content, you want more anthropology content, you want more archaeology content, you want to hear more about the field, head on over to the Arcananth podcast. Give them a listen. Give them a Give them a review if you like it, because, you know, reviews and ratings help promote our podcasts to other platforms. And so, yeah, give them a listen. I think you'll like it. Also, just as a note, um, I hope you guys are all doing great. It's been a rough week. We recorded this the day after the election um, on on the Wednesday, November 4th. And I just want to let you all know that sending my wishes out to all of you, my best wishes. I hope you're doing well. Thank you to all the people that have been leaving me ratings and reviews. Again, it means a lot. I love to see the interaction and that people are, you know, my podcast is finding an audience and that people are liking it. If you want to like be in contact with me, oh my gosh, I would love that. I would love to hear, again, what you love about the podcast, maybe what you don't love about the podcast, what you think, what guests you want to hear. Like, oh my gosh, send me an email. I'll have my podcast email linked in the description below. It's also my Instagram bio. Um, follow me on that anthro podcast Instagram. Send me a DM, chat with me. I would love to learn more about my listeners because I'm starting to realize that I have a little bit of an audience, <laughs> which I'm very thankful for, but I definitely wasn't expecting it. So without Further ado, Ronnie Bailey Steinitz. Hi, Ronnie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for recording with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're so accomplished and you've done so many amazing things throughout your academic career. Uh, I have so much to ask you about. I am confident this is going to be a wonderful episode. But let's introduce you to our listeners a little bit. Could you kind of explain your background uh, and what brought you to where you are now as a fourth year PhD candidate at UCSB? Yeah. So, I mean, again, thank you for having me. Your um, previous episodes of uh, the Anthro podcast is um, they're they're all great. I'm really glad that you're creating more visibility um, for scientific fields, especially in social sciences, sciences and for um, women in science. Um, So my name is Ronnie Bailey Steinitz. I'm a PhD student in the Integrative Anthropological Sciences program at UCSB. So that's under the anthropology department. Um, My research focuses on food web interactions. So how different species interact um, within an ecological community with one another. So I studied ecology at UC San Diego for my undergrad and my master's, and I collaborated with the San Diego Zoo Institute for Conservation Research um, for my undergrad independent research and then for my master's thesis. Um, I studied competition between endangered species of reptiles in the Caribbean. And then more recently, I've worked with U.S. Geological Survey to look at bobcat prey preference in Southern California, um, especially in light of the California drought that we experienced for a while. 
Um, so I, I do have a bit of an untraditional background. I started my undergrad when I was 23 years old, um, and that was after serving in the army for three years. Um, and then after the army, I backpacked through South America for eight months, uh, which was a blast. Um, and then I finally moved to the U.S. to pursue uh, college education. So I've been here for 11 years now. That's wonderful. I love having people on that have diverse backgrounds because it just it contributes so much more. And it's so in, always so interesting to hear how people got interested in what they're interested in. That's one of my favorite things that I've gotten to learn on the podcast is, you know, how people got interested in anthropology. So let's dive into your research at UCSB. Uh, so you primarily focus on primate community ecology. Could you kind of further explain your research questions and then your methods of analyses? Sure. So uh, I'll try to make this as short as I can, but it's um, it's a bit of a deep dive. That's okay. That's what we're here for. We want all the info. <laughs> so um, I look at how feeding competition affects several overlapping species of primates. So generally speaking, in the field of ecology, I kind of find that feeding ecology shapes the evolution of all living things on earth, right? Um, so, you know, if we look at animals, for example, they live by two primary drivers. So the need to find food and the ability to convert that food energy into offspring, which is the ultimate goal of life, right? So we can look at energy as the currency by which animals live and operate. Um, and the scope of my dissertation research is looking at several species of primates that all share this considerable overlap in their diets. So they're all seeking the same foods in the forest. Um, and I look at how they all make a living. So they need to find enough energy um, in the forest on a daily basis, and they need to use it wisely. Um, and then they're consistently playing this game of food monopoly. So an interesting thing we see um, is that a few species that I study, of the few species that I study, the red-tailed monkeys, the smallest ones, have a different relationship with their environment than the larger species like manga bees um, and blue monkeys and uh, as well as chimpanzees. Now, I don't study the chimpanzees, but I study the smaller monkeys um, and chimpanzees are also there and exerting probably a lot of feeding competition. So, we see for these red tails that when there's plenty of food in the forest, the larger species do well, but the smaller ones don't. They appear emaciated. So this led us to ask, you know, why is there this discrepancy um, between how these species are doing and uh, especially with the amount of food that's seemingly abundant in the forest. So we think this is because of this feeding competition between the species. You know, one species has a priority of access because of their size, so they can be bullies and they can better monopolize food by kicking out other species from a feeding tree. So moving on, you know, the next question is how do we, now that we have this hypothesis, how do we empirically measure that? How do we document this discrepancy? And one way is by looking at biomarkers. These are hormones and other byproducts of metabolism, and they can give us a, a really good indication of the physical condition of these animals. Um, so in a nutshell, a biomarker is just, you know, a measurable byproduct of uh, processes in the body. So for example, carbon dioxide is a byproduct of cellular respiration. So if I measure the amount of carbon dioxide that I expel, that can give me an indication of how much cellular respiration I'm, I'm performing, I'm doing. Um, and the cool thing about these biomarkers is that they're, they're really a novel tool within ecology that offers us a much more precise and non-invasive measure um, of how much food energy uh, an animal uses and expels. Um, so as an example uh, of a biomarker, 
when a primate eats fruit that's high in sugar, the pancreas produces insulin. And one of the byproducts of this process is a protein called C-peptide. Now, in human and non-human primates, the amount uh, uh, the amount of C-peptide peptide that's excreted in urine is a really good indicator of the animal's energetic condition. So again, it's an excreted in urine. How do I go about measuring that? Well, as kind of is implied, this means that I spend a lot of time um, chasing monkeys, trying to collect their pee and their poop uh, in ways that are non-invasive and non-stressful for the animal. So we don't dart the monkeys. We don't catch them. We just kind of follow them around all day and wait for them to pee. Um, and then that kind of, you know, this leads us to thinking about what differences we should expect to see in these animals in the wild. So animals who have sufficient access to food should have higher values, value, values, sorry, higher values of this biomarker or these biomarkers than those who, um, don't have enough to eat. Right. Um, and so the bottom line is that my goal is to measure and evaluate these biomarkers to identify the environmental constraints, um, including feeding competition, that limit energy gain in these animals. Um, so because feeding scarcity can affect reproduction in, in females, it can limit population growth. So it's really a good tool to be able to assess populations in need of conservation intervention. Wow, so fascinating. Uh, definitely interesting even for me to hear because my specialty is more archaeology, osteology. So I just, I love hearing about new fields and new things that I just know nothing about. I'm learning on the podcast too. So um, a lot of your work takes place in the IAS biobehavioral lab, which is where I met you. And uh, I was curious, do you enjoy the lab work? And like, what does it entail? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, apart from, you know, being a primatologist, we spend a lot of time in the field. But apart from running around chasing monkeys all day in the rainforest, I do spend a significant portion of my time in the lab back here um, at UCSB, um, working on extracting these hormones from the samples that I bring back from the field. And um, one main method that we use, for example, is um, measuring the amount of hormones in sample in samples by with a process called um, radioimmunoassays. Um, so basically, we tag the hormone proteins um, within the sample with a radioactive tracer and then measure the amount of radiation that the samples emit in a gamma radiation counter. So basically, the more radioactive it is, um, the, the more hormones were in the sample. It, it does it in a, in a negative correlation way, but, but that's kind of the gist of it. It's pretty neat stuff. So fascinating. It's extremely neat stuff. Even just the various like extraction processes that I saw going on in the lab are not necessarily what I would expect um, for extracting those things and then evaluating them. Um, so you've mentioned that a lot of your field work does, a lot of your work does involve being in the field in specific in Uganda, in Africa with the monkeys. And you have some beautiful, incredible photos that you've shared via Instagram and also on your website, which I will make sure to have linked in the description so everyone can go check it out. I already said in the intro that you guys need to check it out. It's amazing. Um, and then, so I know you must have like a lot of stories and experiences from those times in the field. How long normally are your field seasons? Yeah, so um, my previous, for my previous work, I spent uh, a month and a half in the Caribbean, which I know sounds awful, doesn't it? Yeah, for you. <laughs> um, and then for my dissertation research, I usually travel to Uganda for a few months at a time. So my my last field season was over a bit over uh, three months long. Um, the 
team of field assistants and I performed this, you know, two week, really intensive crash survey in each of several sites um, to collect samples and information about the environment that these primates live in. And some of these forests are healthier, uh, more intact, and others are somewhat more degraded um, because they, you know, border um, human populations that use natural resources that the forest has to offer. So we were kind of going around surveying these um, several different sites as potentials for future study. You also mentioned that you have some cool examples of evolutionary adaptations among animals to share with us. Yeah, um, so I love teaching about ecology. I've done it as an undergrad, as a master's student, um, and now as a PhD student um, when I'm TAing here. Um, so evolution is such a neat process. It really explains the biodiversity of all living things that we see on Earth, you know, back from bacteria to earthworms to red-tailed monkeys and sequoia trees and um, blue whales, which are the largest, largest vertebrates, largest living things on Earth um, or living animals on Earth. One of my favorite adaptations to talk about when I teach ecology is the appearance of flight in the animal kingdom. So it's evolved four uh, times independently in the animal kingdom in birds, uh, mammals, specifically in bats, uh, insects like beetles and butterflies, and also in reptiles, uh, pterosaurs who are now extinct. Um, and in each of these lineages, once this trait appeared once in the evolutionary record, um, it spread like wildfire. So it pushed this adaptive radiation where, you know, there's th this formation of many, many new species from, from one species before that, um, that are now occupying these previously untapped territories that are the sky. So it gave them such a huge advantage um, that we see this huge diversity of organism in these lineages um, that use this trait. Um, so it really is a successful trait to have um, and a great uh, kind of example of how uh, evolution happens that quickly. Another example that I love talking about um, is unique ecological niches, niches where um, animals of different lineages, different evolutionary backgrounds evolve to occupy a niche that is typically associated with another animal. Our, a really neat example of this um, is actually within the primate lineage. In a primate called the I.I., um, which is a, a lemur, a species of lemur um, that's endemic to Madagascar. Um, so the I.I., they're, they're quite hideous, but also adorable um, primates. You should look up uh, what they I'm wondering if they're in um, what's the like Madagascar the movie? Are they the ones with the striped? No, tail? those are ring-tailed lemurs. I eyes are. I cannot recall if they're in Madagascar, but if you look them up, there's like no mistaking what they are. They're these hideous <laughs> demon primates that I just absolutely oh adore. Um, so they occupy this. Uh, they occupy this niche similar to that of woodpeckers, right? So if you think of birds, woodpeckers, they tap on trees and they listen to the echoes of grubs and other insects in the bark. Um, but in Madagascar, there are no woodpeckers. They are uh, mainland animals. Madagascar is an island. So this feeding niche is practically up for grabs and enter I.I., um, a primate species that doesn't have a beak. So how does a primate species that doesn't have a beak occupy a niche of a flying bird that does? Well, uh, they had to come up with a different solution to the same problem. So instead of a beak, eye eyes have a really 
abnormally hideously long middle finger um, with a long claw on it. And it's, it's different from the rest of its fingers. And it uses that finger to kind of tap percussion on the wood, on the bark. And it can hear with its big, big ears, it can hear the echoes um, from within that bark that indicate whether there's a grub there or not, um, just like the, the woodpecker does. And when it finds one, it uses really long front teeth instead of a beak to gouge a hole in the bark. And then it uses that, again, hideously long finger with the claw to kind of fish out the grub as a woodpecker would do um, with its tongue. So the idea here is that there's, you know, these two very unrelated species that can evolve very differently to occupy a very, very similar ecological niche um, because they experience through the course of their evolutionary history um, these similar environmental pressures that shape them to do um, the same role, to take on the same role in their ecosystem. Um, and I have a recommendation if you're interested in these kinds of topics. Um, Jonathan Lossos, uh, an evolutionary biologist at Harvard, he kind of takes a jab at these concept, concepts in his book, uh, Improbable Destinies, Fate, Chance, and the Future of Evolution, that I highly recommend. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I've started doing book recommendations at, or podcast recommendations at the beginning of each episode. And when I recorded the intro before you and I recorded, I was like, guys, I, I haven't been reading anything lately, but I have a podcast recommendation. So here you go, listeners. There's your book recommendation. Can I recommend a podcast too? Oh, yes. Uh, the Common Descent. I swear it's one of my favorite podcasts ever. They um, simplify topics in evolutionary um, or in evolution and animal adaptations and stuff like that um, to to where it's really uh, easy for someone who's not a biologist or not a, an evolutionary um, scientist to understand how these adaptations came to be. Um, they're two nerds and I love listening to them because they nerd out about like dinosaur species and stuff and it's the best. That's so cool. I'll definitely have to check that out. Also, I looked up the eye eyes and... Not going to lie, if that creature was white, I would say it kind of looks a little bit like Daisy in, like, the, the sweetest way. Something about yep. the ears just give me, like, Daisy looking at me when she's scared yep. vibes. <laughs> anyway, so what are some of your tips for surviving a field season, particularly long field seasons like you experience? Right. So um, it, it's interesting because in primatology, at least, you know, the old school expectation was that you go out to the field, you... Um, stay out there for a year so you can really learn the system really well um, and you collect all your samples or all your data within that year and then you come back and you spend a few years writing that up into a dissertation and what my advisor dr uh, michelle brown at ucsb anthropology um, and i kind of agreed upon was that you know for the questions that i'm asking it would be interesting for me to look at kind of longer term um, changes in energy allocation in these primates. And so I actually go out for shorter field seasons, but several of them. Um, so working in the tropics is amazing, but there's a lot that can, can go wrong when you spend months in the rainforest, right? My last field season was three months and um, there were several things that went wrong, um, but ultimately everyone lived to tell, tell tales about it. Um, you can get injured, you can get bit by an animal or many animals, you can get, you know, food poisoning, um, or even get a parasitic infection, which actually I did last summer. I do not recommend it. Yeah, uh, my friend Bree got stung by a jellyfish when we were in Spain. Oh, yikes. Um, that's, I guess, uncomfortable. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, especially in an area like in the rainforest, there's so many different um, parasites or animals that can really bite you and sting you. Um, and you really got to be careful about what you do, where you put your backpack down. I almost put my backpack down on a snake, on a bitey snake. Um, yeah. Oh, no. And if you want to see pictures of the parasitic infestation or infection, it wasn't that bad. It's not too gruesome, but it's on my Instagram. There's a little blog about it. Um <laughs> Oh yeah, no, I saw that. And then you were saying it was because you put, you left your clothes out in the rainforest or something. Yeah. I left my shirt out to dry because it was, we had a downpour and I left my shirt out to dry outside of my tent. So it got a bit of a breeze. Um, and I think, so I got, um, infested by what's called a mango fly larva. Um, so basically these flies go and they land on, um, well, without humans being in the forest, they land on animals, usually mammals, um, and they lay their eggs close to the mammal or on the ground. And then when the larvae hatch, they find an animal, uh, latch onto it, and then dig into the skin. So I, I will save you the gruesome details of what happened um, to me, but you can definitely they, they chose you as your as their yes host. definitely and and they lived with me for a few weeks until it was time for them to spread their wings and leave um, yes. quite literally um oh, yeah gosh. so yeah you know living in a rainforest for several months it 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 has its costs and benefits right benefits is, is that it's an amazing um environment to be in it's there's nothing like it you are surrounded by nature uh in every which way and um you can really immerse yourself in this environment that's so foreign to us, right? Um, or at least to, to us in the United States. Um, so it really is a really amazing uh, experience. Um, but you do have to prepare uh, for the worst and kind of hope for the best. So, you know, if you are going to do um, field work uh, outside of the US or even in places that are just, you know, off campus, um, you've got to make sure that you have, well, my, my, foremost, I guess, recommendation is having a really tailored first aid kit on you. So not the junk you get at the store that's already compiled with crappy equipment. Um, load it with Benadryl, Neosporin, anti-nausea pills, anti-diuretic meds, um, eye drops. Uh, I do also take a small mirror with me. And um, uh, and like I said, the eye drops to get stuff out of my eyes because I get junk in them all the time from looking up into the trees uh, looking for monkeys, monkeys all day. And that's, that's a shout out to my advisor, Dr. Michelle Brown for, uh, recommending the mirrors. Um, I wouldn't have thought of it and it's, it, it comes really comes in handy. Um, I guess another thing is, you know, before you go anywhere to do field work, prepare ahead of time. So do a lot of research on your destination, um, what the weather is like, what kind of vaccinations you might need, how, how long ahead of time you need to get those vaccinations, apply for a visa, um, but a cool thing that you can do, especially if you're visiting another country, is also look up what sites other than your field site you should try to check out while you're there. So it would be really a shame to travel all the way to Peru without visiting the Machu Picchu or all the way to Tanzania without going um, on safari. Yeah, it's also important, I think, in any anthropological work that you're making sure that you are best serving the wishes of the community you're in touch with the community and the place that you are at you're in touch with the cultural norms and you're making sure that you know you're respectful and that's obviously immersing yourself and traveling to other places other than your field site is a great way 100 percent. i absolutely agree you, you really have to 
understand that you are a visitor with, within someone else's life and, and environment. And you really got to be um, uh, culturally sensitive. Make sure that you're not pushing anyone out of um, their comfort zone because you are a guest. Yeah, definitely. So let's switch gears a little bit. What inspires your work and keeps you going during through the difficult times? And what advice would you give to others pursuing a similar career path? You know, I really love what I do. Um, grad school is okay most days and it sucks a lot of the time. Um, but I really find joy uh, in doing the science and in knowing that the kind of research I do really contributes to conservation efforts. Um, and I... That is kind of the ultimate goal for me. Um, I I really enjoy, and I think that there is meaning in the research I do, um, if it can go to make these differences on a global level, especially um, you know as we're in the midst of a sixth mass extinction, um, doing whatever I can to contribute to that as as small a part as I play, um, that really makes it so much more important for me. Very impactful. Yeah. Um, in terms of advice, I think, um, well, regardless to what career path you're choosing, um, one piece of advice is that, that I think you should take courses outside of your major um, and your immediate field of study. I think, you know, if you find if, if you find that you're coming to the university and you're studying one topic and it's not quite what you expected, try to branch out, see what other courses are offered in other departments. Um, if you find a topic that interests you, go talk to the professor or the TAs about it. Um, and maybe they know how you can get um, you can get involved and score like a research assistant position or something like that. I know that at UC Santa Barbara, there's um, programs that allow for undergrads to come in and do research um, in labs. Um, don't be afraid to ask to participate in research. So the worst someone can say is no. Um, and kind of along that line is that sometimes the right path is there, but you can't see it. So if the door doesn't exist, make it and then push it open. Um, create connections with people in the field that you're interested in. Um, and then you'll begin kind of hearing about these positions or finding new positions. Um, and if anything, you can also build enough rapport to be able to ask for positions, again, if they don't exist. Um, I did that. I did that with U.S. Geological Survey, um, and I did that other times during my academic career. Can I quote you on, if you don't, if a door doesn't exist, make it and push yeah, it Yeah, please do. <laughs> I'm going to put that on the Instagram. That's <laughs> great. Thank you so much for coming on today. I will make sure to have for our listeners, everything Ronnie talked about, her website, her research linked below, please check it out. You know, I definitely think, especially if this was piqued your interest, if you're a UCSB student, you want to know more, I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. Um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Gabby. You're doing awesome work. Mm -hmm.